0: Would please, and we'll open to Nehemiah chapter 10. Please find in the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter 10. Some of you may be familiar with a songwriter by the name of Lanny Wolf. Lanny Wolf wrote many beautiful songs. One of those is the song that we sing after every Sunday morning service, Surely the Presence of the Lord is in this place. There are other songs that he wrote. One, one song he wrote is Whatever It Takes... And the words of that song are beautiful because he writes, Whatever it takes to be more like you, that's what I'd be willing to do. And he talks about taking sunshine for a rain, sunshine and rain and all the different kinds of uh, uh, problems that we have in our life. But he said, No matter what it is, whatever you'd have me to do, Lord, that's what i will be willing to do. But Lanny Wolf also wrote a, a song in 1980 entitled, Stirred But Not Changed. And he wrote in that song one line, he said, I'm so tired of being stirred and not being changed. And many times we can come into church services and we hear songs that are sung. We may hear a message that's preached. And at that very moment that we hear it, it strikes us, and it may affect our heart in a certain way. We're cut to the heart, and we're stirred over what that song has to say. And we may make a determination at that very moment that we are going to do what God wants us to do. We're going to get things right with God. We're going to serve the Lord. But unfortunately, when the moment's passed and we leave the church service, we've been stirred, but we haven't been changed. We really don't do anything about the promise that we make that we want to serve the Lord. Well, that's a problem that many of us can have. And it's one that could have affected the Jews in Nehemiah's time uh, if they let it do it. But there was a glorious celebration that we read about in chapter 9 that we talked about last week. And uh, in chapter 10, we find a great revival among God's people. But when the revival is over and the last sermon is preached, the people could have returned to the way that they were before... And they slowly would have retreated into a place where God couldn't bless them. But thank the Lord that they were determined that not only would they be stirred, but they would be changed. And so they confess their sins in chapter 9. And then as we come to chapter 10, we find the people of Nehemiah's day ready to make a serious commitment to the Lord. And they say that we're going to do better. We're going to serve God. And it's not just that they're mouthing the words. They're ready to make a very serious commitment. And they say, we will obey God and we'll serve Him. Now tonight, I want to take a few minutes for us to look at this covenant of commitment that these people made in Nehemiah's day and I want to show you that that's the same type of commitment that we need to make in in our church tonight. Now I'd like for you to stand with me please as we read God's word and I'm actually going to start with chapter 9 verse number 38. And then uh, chapter 10 begins a long list of names, and I'm not going to read those names, but these are the people that signed on to this covenant, and it started with Nehemiah. So we're going to skip those names, and we'll go down to verse number 28. If you look at the, your, your Bible, please. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. And because of all this, that's because of the revival that came, because of the reading of God's word, because they were stirred in their hearts. They said, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it in our princes, Levites and priests seal unto it. Then chapter 10 begins, and that first name that we find there is Nehemiah is on the list of people who signed this covenant. Now skip down to verse number 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nephinims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his judgments and his statutes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of this word tonight. I just ask you, Lord, that you'd show us something from the word, something that we can learn. And I do pray, Lord, that we would be people that are not only stirred by the singing and the preaching of your word, but people that are also changed by it. Speak to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes when I'm working on three different sermon series, it's, it's almost amazing how that just about at the same time, it seems that these three series begin to converge onto the very same themes. And sometimes you might come to church and and listen to a message that I preach, and you get the idea, but, well, uh, he's preaching the same message all over again and saying the same things again. Well, I I really do prepare different messages for each service. It's just that sometimes uh, God has something in the Word that we're teaching at that particular moment that he's trying to drive a point home. He's trying to get this across to us. And so sometimes those themes may converge, and I do preach on the same themes. Now, recently, in in studying the book of John on Sunday mornings, we've been studying about obedience. The theme was obedience. How do you get prayers answered? Well, it's by obedience to God. How do you show others that you're a true believer in Jesus Christ? And the Bible says you do that by obedience. How do you influence people for Christ? You do it by your obedience. Obedience. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, in those last hours that he spent with his disciples, he emphasized over and over and over again that his people needed to obey him. Obedience was the theme. So as we studied chapters 14 through 16 in the Gospel of John, we found out that the theme is obedience. Well, it seems that... This is the theme of Nehemiah as well. It's recurring right here in the scriptures that we're reading over the past few weeks. These are the people of God and they're trying to find out how are they going to get on track with God again? How are they going to receive God's blessings? And the key to it all is their obedience. These are people that are coming back. And so in chapters 8, 9, and 10, they are people who want to come back with the Lord. They want to get right with God. And the key was their obedience. But more ...than just obedience. It's a desire to carry through with what God has commanded them to do. So here are people who are tired of being stirred and not being changed. James Montgomery Boyce has some interesting comments on this particular chapter... ...in his commentary on Nehemiah. He comes to chapter 10 and he begins that chapter by talking about... ...how it seems that everybody today has a psychiatrist... Everybody has a a psychologist, and lots of people are in therapy today. And he wondered why it is that with so many people in therapy that we really don't see people changing. Why aren't people actually getting better? So he went to one of his psychologist friends, and he asked him, he said, "'Why is there so little change that happens through therapy?' And his friend answered him and said, "'It's because people really don't want to change.'" And the only way that change will ever happen is when people want that change to happen. And so Boyce concluded that that's the same way it is in our spiritual lives. There are Christians who talk a good game. They talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. And the reason is they don't really want to be changed. They don't want their lifestyle to change. And so their their habits uh, uh, and so on, they go on just like they were before. They won't change habits. They won't reorder priorities. And so they come into the services and they know, they know that they should change. There's something that happens to them. They know they ought to change, but they don't. And so they're constantly being stirred, but never changed. Well, that could have happened to these Jews, but it didn't. At least not in this incident, it didn't happen. They, they were very serious about what they were doing, and they weren't just mouthing the words... But they started looking at things that they weren't doing and should be doing, and things that they should be doing but they weren't doing, and they said, we are going to change. We're going to reorder our priorities. Now, this evening, we're going to look at some things that they decided to do that encompassed real heartfelt obedience and a desire to change. Now, first, I want to show you tonight that the people decided that there would be submission to the Word of God. So there was a decision to see what God's word says and to go back to that and to submit themselves to the command of thus saith the Lord. So we look at verse number 29 again. It says, They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His judgments and His statutes. Now, there are two important things For us to consider about submission to God's word. First of all there's the recognition of the authority of scripture. Now now that's a huge problem in the world today. And unfortunately it's it's a problem among Christians as well. You know, you know it, it really hasn't been all that long that if you ended up arguing with somebody about what was right and wrong, and you were trying to decide which side of a question that you were going to be on, that you could just pull out a Bible verse, and you'd read that Bible verse, and you'd won the argument right there. Because if the Bible says it, it must be true. And if you did that, you'd won, because just about everybody accepted the authority of Scripture. If the Bible says it, it's true doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to follow it, but if the Bible says it, it must be true. But you know, folks are no longer that way. In America today, if you pull out your Bible and you say, here's what the Bible says about it, you're more likely to be ridiculed as being ignorant and being superstitious and somebody who's not acquainted with the truth at all. And so people don't recognize the authority of the Bible any longer like they once did. Even in so-called Christian circles today, people aren't looking for their answers in the Word of God. I mean, they'll go to every place else. They'll look to everything else. But folks, the Bible is, the really, is really the only source that we can go to for truth. It's all right here in the Bible. The Bible is the way for us to see the truth. Now, I want to point out to you tonight some eyes of the Bible. And you have to understand that the Bible is the truth through the eyes of the Bible. Now, let me show you what those eyes are. There are three eyes of the Bible. And the first one is inspiration. The Bible was inspired by God. Now, the word inspired actually means breathed. The Bible was breathed by God. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness." Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, "...for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." And so this is what God did. He breathed upon the writers. He inspired them to write down the very words that he wanted man to know. Now, folks, if the Bible is inspired, then that means it's authoritative. It means that it must be believed. God has inspired his word. The second eye of the Bible is infallibility. The scriptures are the infallible word of God. And, of course, the infallibility of the Scripture... ...stems from the attributes of the one who gave it. God is an infallible God. And so it stands to reason if we affirm that God is the author of the Scriptures... ...then His Scriptures also must be infallible. And so that means that the Bible can never fail. There's not one promise that you can ever read in the Bible that won't come true... ...because the Word of God is infallible. And the Bible is authoritative because of that infallibility. And if God is a liar... He can't be God and his word can't be true. Now, the third eye of the Bible is inerrancy. And inerrancy, that's very closely related to infallibility. But when I'm speaking of inerrancy, I'm, I'm saying that the Bible is free from error. And I mean that God has preserved his word. We can have full confidence that what we read in the scriptures is exactly, fully what God wanted us to know. Now, for sure, we have a translation of Scripture. We, we don't have the, the original Scriptures. No one has those. But we have a faithful translation to the original. And these, these words that we read in our Bible are never going to lead us any, into any doctrinal error. Now, here in Berean Baptist, we use the King James Version. And we use that because we believe that it was translated from better text. And that the men who translated the King James were better translators. They were better scholars. And we have a Bible here that was translated and guarded by God. And there's a good reason for that. And it's because the English translation of the Bible, the King James, would be the premier translation that would be used to win people all over the world. And that's been so for almost four centuries. Now, I believe that people decided, these people decided to get right with God and they recognized that God's word is the authority. And so they said, we're going to observe his word. We're going to do his commandments of the Lord, our Lord. Now, today we need to do the same. We need to recognize the authority of scripture. And so that means when God says that we're to do something, we're to do it. We're not to hesitate about it. It's God's word and it's authoritative. And if we belong to God and we expect to receive God's blessings, then we've got to be determined to do God's word. Now, not only did they recognize the authority of God's word, but they also gave allegiance to the scriptures. Allegiance to the scriptures. They swore an oath of allegiance to the scriptures. Now, they respected the Bible and they respected the Bible alone as the authority. You know, it's one thing to say that the Bible is authoritative, but it's quite another to say that the Bible alone is authoritative. And that's where many people get mixed up. For instance, the Mormons. The Mormons say, well, yes, the Bible is authoritative, but there's also another testament, and that's also authoritative. And so they say that the Book of Mormon is an authority. Others, like the Jehovah Witnesses, be, believe that the Watchtower is an authority. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that the the writings of Ellen G. White are an authority. They're equal with what God has said. And even the Roman Catholics believe that what the Pope says or or what their councils say is an equal authority uh, with the Word of God, with the Bible. And so those groups swear allegiance to what men have said rather than what God alone has said and, and, and tell us that the Bible itself is not the only authority that we have. And folks, if you really want to get down to it, if the Bible ever comes in conflict, which I assure you that it does with the Book of Mormon, and if it ever comes in conflict with Adventism or Catholicism, then it's the Bible that's wrong, and their writings are the ones that are right. And that's what they believe. But folks, the the Bible is our only authority. And that's why we call it plenarily inspired. That means it's the full and complete revelation of God to man. And you'll never be right unless you swear your allegiance to the Bible and the Bible alone as your authority. And so that's why when I stand up here and preach in this pulpit that we use only the Bible. We're not going to use anything else because God's Word is the authority and allegiance to God's Word is necessary. Submission to His Word comes through our obedience, obedience to the truth that we find in the Scriptures. So this is how they start out. They start out with the Word and getting back to the Word. And that's where we need to go as well. Submission to the word was first. And then, secondly, there was separation from the world. God has chosen his people out of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. God chose out a peculiar people for himself. And God separated those people. And when God gave them the land of Canaan, he told them to drive out all of their enemies. He didn't want them cohabitating with the heathens. And whenever God's people mix it up with a godless culture that's around us, the consecration and dedication to God, to the true God, always suffers when we do that. Now, that's why the Jews had to rebuild the temple. That's why they had to rebuild their city walls. It's because they had mixed in with the heathens, and they'd taken heathen gods to be their gods. So they disobeyed. And so what God did was to bring chastisement upon them. He allowed their enemies to come in. They tore down the temple. They tore down the walls and they took the people into captivity. And do you know what the primary culprit in all of that was? You know where this whole thing started? It started with intermarriage with godless heathens. And so in order to straighten this problem out, they had to make a promise. And they said, we're no longer going to allow our sons and our daughters to marry outside of the faith. They said, we're going to change, and we're not going to do that anymore. Now, verse number 30 says, and that we would not give our daughters under the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. So what did they decide to do? Well, here's what they wanted. First of all, they wanted to rebuild strong families. And folks, the key to a successful church is to start right down on the family level. We're not going to have a strong church unless there's some commitment to our families. One thing that Satan knows for sure that if he can destroy the family, he will also destroy the church. That's that's not going to be very far behind. And did you realize that all social institutions began with the family? I mean, you're, I'm talking about whether it's godly or ungodly. The family is the basic social unit that underlines all of our society. The home is where education started. The first schools were in the home. And so you can say in a real sense that, that grammar schools and every, every uh, middle school, every high school, every college, every university got its start in the home. The home was the first hospital. That's where we took care of people who were sick. And so every uh, hospital, every organization of that kind, health organization, owes its existence to the home. Government started with the home. Families banded together and they organized governments. And so we can say that every monarchy in the world today, every democracy that's in the world, it all started with the home. So the home is the basic societal structure and so it stands to reason that if you destroy the home, then you're going, to destroy, you're going to destroy society as well. You're going to degrade society. So it all began with destroying the home. How did the communists do it? Remember how they did it? They separated boys and girls from their families. They tore children out of their homes. And it wasn't long before allegiance to the state was the, was the main thing, and it's no longer allegiance to the family. Now, the devil knows all of that. He's smart. He knows all of that. And so where does the devil attack us? He attacks us at the home. That's where he starts. Divorce rates are up. Discipline is down. The devil knows it all. Now, you saw this in the news recently. There was a half-crazed lunatic in Sacramento who introduced a bill to prohibit spanking. Do, Do you not think that the devil wasn't behind that? That he hasn't spawned that kind of thinking? He knows that you destroy discipline and you'll destroy your home. Someone asked a Senate chaplain, said, do you pray for the senators? And he said, no. He said, when I see who they are and what they do, I pray for the country. And folks, that's what we need. The devil's after the home. And he's going to try to get it. So we focus on families here because we know we can't have a strong church unless we have strong families so we do things like we did this morning when we dedicate little babies to the Lord. As I said today, you know, we don't baptize them. We can't give babies any, any graces when we do that. But, but we do it because uh, we want to give that support. We, we pledge to pray for that child. We, we pledge to support the family. And we want to provide a place where the family can come and where kids can learn about the Lord. So it's up to us, folks. We have to watch over our families. So we provide our children with things like Sunday school. We give them the Pioneer Club. And we do that because we want them to have a place where they can go and, and they can find playmates that are not among the people of the world. They need to be separate from the world. Now, I know all children can't go to a Christian school, but whatever time that we have the kids here, we want to put them in an environment where they learn the Word of God and they can learn principles to live by. And, I, and we know this. That by that education, God is going to save their souls. And, and that's a promise from God. They receive the word and the Holy Spirit takes that word to convict their hearts. I believe it's a promise from God that he's given us. That if we raise our children in God's house, if we separate ourselves as parents and we be the kind of people that God wants us to be, God will save our children. That promise never fails. It's only the people that fail. The promise never fails. So get back with God. Get right with God. Make a commitment to family. Stop intermingling with the people of the land. And that's what Israel had to do. And they they never would have had a problem with people in the land. The people wouldn't have been in the land if they just obeyed God 10 centuries before this and drove those people out just like God said. So the separation started with their families. But then there's something else that they had to do. They had to rebuild strong families, but also they decided they were going to return to Sabbath observance, to return to Sabbath observance. When I first started preaching here, there was a saying that I often use, and maybe I ought to go back to this saying. I said, if you can't teach people to go to church, you can't teach them anything. Now, really, that line has a double entendre. First of all, if you can't, teach people the very basic thing, like they need to go to church, then you can forget about teaching them any deep doctrines from the Word of God. That just won't happen. If you can't get the very basic thing that you need to go to church, you're not going to learn the other things. But the other thing as well is that if people don't come to church, then you can't get them into the place where you can teach them anything. Now, these people recognize that they'd fallen down on Sabbath observance. God told them, He said, take one day of the week and you use that day and dedicate it to the Lord. Don't you buy? Don't you sell? I don't want any of that to take place on this day. I want this day to be wholly dedicated to me. And of course, we all know that the principle of the Sabbath goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation. When God created the world, He took six days to create it and on the seventh day, rested. He didn't rest because He was tired. That's impossible. But what he did do was give us a principle to live by. And he says, here's what I want you to do. This is good for you. Set that day aside and you use that to worship me. And so the Sabbath day, that was practiced all the way up to the establishment of Israel. It was incorporated into the laws that God gave Moses. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, over the course of of Israel's history, Sabbath days were, were often ignored. The, ob- the, the observation of the Sabbath was ignored. And when it was, that, that was symbolic of Israel's failure. And, and the spiritual condition of the people was almost always tied to the observance of the Sabbath. And whenever observance of the Sabbath began to suffer, then the, condition, the spiritual condition of the people also suffered. Now, in verse 31 of our text, the people recognized those Sabbath laws had to be kept. So here's what they say. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. There's a whole lot of rules and regulations that go along with Old Testament Sabbath observance. I don't have time to talk about all those things tonight. But Israel knew that if they were going to be changed, they had to do something about observing the Sabbath. Now today, of course, we don't have all of those Sabbath laws. But the New Testament most definitely does incorporate into our teaching and our learning the, the, the principle of the Sabbath, and that's to be a part of our worship. There's still to be a day that's set aside for us to worship the Lord. Now, when the Old Testament laws were done away with by the crucifixion of Christ and the Sabbath observances went out of existence, the apostles held on to the principles of it. I mean, they, that, that principle remained. Because the scripture tells us that they began to meet on the first day of the week. And before, they met on Saturday, but now they got together on the first day of the week. And they did that because that was the day that Jesus arose from the dead. They did it because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead commemorated a greater work. It commemorated the work of redemption. And so that's why, that's why we meet on Sunday, every, every Sunday. That's why Christians get together. Because Jesus arose, and that's the day that we're to worship. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, the first day of the week was called the Lord's Day. John wrote, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now folks, since the Sunday is called the Lord's Day, it ought to be apparent to us that it's not our day. Sunday is a day to separate ourselves from, from secular activities, get away from all those things that we're involved in, go to church, think about what Jesus has done for us, and to worship the Lord. That's what you need to use Sunday for. I have never, ever, never have I seen a strong Christian who wasn't diligent about keeping the Lord's day. Now, I think more of our people, if we want to bring it down to application to us tonight, I think that more of our people need to be diligent about being in church on Sunday. Now, I know people need vacations, we all do, but I think that there's too many Christians who plan to be away from church too much. And when they get away from their church, they don't think about, well, I've got to miss my church services. I'm going to miss the fellowship of God's people. Now, people tell me all the time, Pastor, I'm not going to be there on Sunday, but I'll be with you in the Spirit. And it gets spooky up here sometimes preaching to a lot of spirits. It really does. But the people of Nehemiah's time they really wanted to change. And so they started rebuilding their families and they returned to Sabbath worship. Now, some people in our church must not really want to change because they're not going to change their habits. They don't have a problem at all missing Sunday this month, the next month, the next month, the next month. It doesn't bother them at all. These people return to the Sabbath observance. Now, let's go on to the final point tonight. There's submission to the Word, separation from the world. Now, finally, I want to talk to you about support. For the work. The next part about being changed and making a real commitment to the Lord was to put their money where their mouths were. They said, We want to get back on the right track, and to prove this, we're willing to give to God what He requires. I've spoken about giving several times in the past few weeks. I'm not afraid to talk about this again. I don't always talk on money, but I have a, a few times here in the last few weeks, but it's important. This is one of those recurring themes. One of those things I think that we need to hear. Now, if you read the rest of this chapter, you'll find out that it's all taken up with the different ways that they were going to return to their giving. There were a lot of things that were to be given. But I'm going to concentrate on just a couple of things here and we'll be done. When they decided to support the work first, there was the remembrance of redemption. And let me say to you that, that if you realize that, that Christ was given for you, that Christ gave himself for you, Why would you not want to give back to Him? Now You you might ask me, well, how does redemption figure into this? I mean, why do you bring up redemption when you're talking about giving? Well, look at verse number 32, if you would. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and for the continual meat offering, and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths, of the new moons, for the set feasts and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings... To make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. Now I want to take you back here for just a moment to months and months ago when we were we were studying the tabernacle. Back in the tabernacle, the people were required to bring a half shekel of silver to the temple. And that was called the redemption money. We have a picture up there. This is the picture we used back when we were studying the tabernacle... and you see the silver that the people are bringing. Now, what they did with this silver... was they used this to make the foundation for the tabernacle. If you'll show me the next slide. Here's the, here's the golden boards, the, 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 out, the structure of the tabernacle itself. And all along the bottom here, these are silver sockets. And those boards fit right down inside of those silver sockets... and those sockets became the foundation for the tabernacle. Now, in the scriptures silver is typical of redemption. Silver is always used to be emblematic of redemption. And so just like Jesus Christ, or I'll start with this, just like these boards had to rest in those sockets of silver, and that was their foundation, so our redemption rests in Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of our salvation. And when they brought this redemption money, all of that money was used to make make that foundation uh, for the tabernacle. Now, here's the thing about this. When, when Christ paid our redemption, when He gave Himself as our redemption, he, he didn't make a redemption that works only when it's coupled with the faith of a believer. No, this is redemption that really, really redeems. It's, it's a redemption that's been secured for every single person that believes. So all those for whom this redemption is paid, they are truly redeemed. Now, have you ever thought about this? When you refuse to bring your tithes and offerings to God, that you dishonor The redemption of Jesus Christ. If the Jews had refused to bring that silver that God said to bring, you know what would have happened? They would have ruined the picture of redemption that God was trying to give them. So here's the thing. When I bring my offerings, when I pay my tithes to God, I'm honoring what God gave to me. And as Christ was obedient to go to the cross, so I am obedient to give God what he requires. And I'd have to ask you, what what Christian is there who who would refuse to honor God by by bringing their tithes and their offerings and would still call themselves an obedient, thankful believer? So Israel knew that the way to get back to God means bringing God his required offerings. And they said, we can't get back with God. We We can't be in fellowship with God unless we bring the offering that God requires. Now, do you ever have this problem? You get stirred, but you don't get changed? Let me ask you about your offerings. Have you been given like you should? Do you have problems getting prayers answered? Have you been giving your offerings like you should? Now, I'm not saying that you can buy your prayers. You can buy answers to your prayers. I'm not saying that at all. But if you expect to get prayers answered, you've got to be obedient to all the principles of God's word. And so when God says to give, we're to give. Now, let me finish tonight by by speaking to you about the priority of giving. There's a word that occurs several times in these last few verses. In verse number 35, it's called first fruits. In verse 36, it's called the firstborn. In verse 37, once again, it says first fruits. And so that recurring word or recurring theme is the word first. God gets what is first. Now, there's two questions that are associated with the priority of giving. The first one is when should we give? And the answer to the question is first give to God first. And so that means that God gets what comes off the top. You see, you don't pay all your bills and then find out what you have left over and then God gets your leftovers. No, you give to God first. You take 10% right off the top, that belongs to God, you give Him an offering, then what you have left goes to pay your bills. And I promise you this, that if you give to God first, what's left will always pay your bills. God's made you that promise. You know, I love stories like this, and I'm sure Madge won't mind me sharing it because we talked about it, But last month, there were some folks that took up an offering to to help Madge Graves. No one knew specifically what her need was, but she came back to me later and she says, I don't know who gave the money, but it was the exact amount that I needed to cover my rent. You see, when you give to God first, God takes care of you, sometimes in very uncommon ways. Our missionary to to, uh, Canada, Brother Mark Robertson, in his mission report here about a month or so ago, talked about, Needing $25,000 to work on his airplane. Now, his airplane, that's the only way he has to get the gospel into these remote areas of Upper Canada where there aren't any roads. So he needed $25,000 and he didn't have it, so he went and borrowed it. He borrowed $25,000 to work on the airplane. He didn't know how he was going to pay that loan back, but you know what God did? Unexpectedly, somebody sent him $25,000 and covered the loan. That's how God works. When you give Him the first fruits, God always takes care of you. Second question, what should we give? And the answer to that question is the first fruits, firstborn, all of that. It carries with it the idea of give God the absolute best. What do we give? We give God the very best. You don't give God things that are discarded and things that are left over. An example that we have in Scripture is when, when Israel offered a lamb. You know, there are some people who would be tempted to bring a sick lamb. Bring one that's old for the sacrifice. I mean, it's going to die anyway, so I'll just bring God that old lamb. But you know they couldn't do that. They said, God said, "You you bring the lamb to the priest, and that priest is going to inspect that lamb, and he's going to look it over very carefully, and he's going to find out if there's any blemish at all on that lamb. It has to be perfectly happy or uh, healthy, I should say, and and it should be. It may not to be happy after the sacrifice, but." Uh, It had to be a lamb that was perfectly healthy. And they inspected that lamb to find out if it was. So that priest looked it over. He took a lamb that was in the prime of its life, and that's what they killed. And that was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was taken in the prime of his life. And we know, as the Bible says, there was no sin in him. There was no spot. There was no blemish. He was perfect in every detail. God gave us his very best. And God wants us to give back our best. So when you give back your best, you recognize God gave his best for you. So do you see what this is? It's steadfast determination. We are making a commitment. We're making a covenant with our God that we're going to submit ourselves to his word. We're once again going to separate ourselves from the world. And then we're going to support God's work among us. Now my question is, what about you? What are you doing, Christian? Have you been stirred up by preaching? Or stirred up by singing, has it affected you in some way? And yet time after time you leave these services and you never do anything about it. You never make any commitment. You know tonight's a good night for you to get off that merry-go-round. Get off those, that merry-go-round of emotions and decide right now, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to surrender it all to Him. I'm going to get right with God right now. And you need to make a life-changing commitment. Do you have a commitment with God? Do you have a commitment to His Word? Do you have a commitment to serve Him? Some of you need to make that commitment tonight, and I encourage you to do that. And when you do, you'll be back in the way of God's blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for what we read from Your Word. We thank You for the beautiful pictures that we have and what Your Word teaches us. I ask You, Lord, that You'd speak to Your people tonight. May we submit ourselves to the authority of Your Word. Thus saith the Lord, and may we do what you say. Lord, I pray that you might help us that we would separate ourselves, uh, separate our families, uh, separate to the place that will do everything that your, your word commands and be a people that's different from the world and serve and honor you. And I pray, Lord, also that you help us to support the work as we should. And we thank you, Lord, for all your blessings and your watch care over us and blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.